Hey guys, welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest, I'm delighted to have back on the show for a third time, was Mr. James Smith. James is a sports performance consultant and is also the owner of uh, globalsportsconcept.net, which will be linked up in the show notes. On this episode, myself and James discussed many topics, but the show mainly centered around James' new book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, A Unified Field Theory of Sports Preparation, which is a book I highly recommend for all individuals involved in the general physical preparation of athletes or involved in the sports preparation profession. And I'll link that up in the show notes. This was an excellent episode with James, guys. We got into some really, really deep topics, and I hope you really enjoy the show. Okay. Okay, James Smith, it is an absolute pleasure, and as always, my friend, an honor to have you come back onto my show. As I said to you just before I came on, you're the first person that come on three times. After our last epic three-hour marathon, that was incredible, so... And I also said to you, we got uh, amazing feedback from the listeners on that one. And, um, and to be honest, I had a bit of hiatus from the podcast because I obviously was away in America there for a while. So I haven't actually put a podcast out now in a while or recorded one. I think since like last November, so it's almost four months. So I'm getting back into the swing of things. So no better way to have you come on to the podcast and discuss what's new. And, and obviously definitely going to discuss uh, your latest book that you published, the, the Governing Dynamics of Coaching, A Unified Field Theory Sports Preparation. Fantastic book and title. Uh, as I said to you also, be honest, I haven't had a chance to read it cover to cover. I, I had a look at it while I was at Altus. Stu McMillan had bought it and read the introduction, flicked through it. It looked, looked very comprehensive and complete, but um, I suppose you're going to get more into that. So first of all, before we can get into the book, what's new with you? What's what's going on in the world of Jane Smith? Thank you very much for having me on again, Robbie. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, pleasure as always. Things, things are going very well for me from a consulting standpoint. I... I'm working a few different venues of opportunity that each one of them particularly particularly good with respect to the approach that I have adopted in in my consulting work and and what interests me most mm-hmm. in terms of having the most global impact on the outcome and so as I mentioned, when we were offline, I'm, I'm partnering with a, a, a close friend of mine now. We're becoming business partners and starting a consulting company that I, I cannot speak about the specific subject matter because we're patenting some concepts. But I'm very optimistic about what that will, the, the fruits that that will bear in the near term because it's based so much on what is non-negotiably essential yet ironically absent in sport coaching and sport preparation so so things are going well and it's effectively all steeped in one facet of consulting or another brilliant brilliant stuff um so coming into this book the the govern dynamics coaching lovely title too really beautiful title um maybe just talk us through the process you know the the genesis of this book and uh, like, what sort of drove you to write it and release it, and and why did you feel it was essential for for the book to be written? 
beginning in my before I had the notion of ever having some type of a career in sport, I was working from you know, it, it's funny, Robbie, in answering this question, we all have the benefit of hindsight. Oh, yeah. And, right, and I'm because I'm so committed to objectivity, which is to say to leave out any implicit bias or prejudice, to be impartial, I really work hard to not embellish his history. Yeah. And that's difficult We, if, if any, you know, any of us really give thought to that. And so what I could say is, Coming out of Berkeley College of Music, I had an interesting set of pedagogical influences because while my studies were heavily steeped in, in rigorous musical, and particularly as a performance major, improvisational jazz abilities and jazz history and music harmony and melody and rhythm and sound, etc., yeah. on, my, on my own, I was developing my physics library. Now, what I've shared with the I don't, I don't know if this has been mentioned in the podcast form. The one subject that I struggled with in high school was physics. Okay. It was it was the one subject matter domain that I had academic problems with. And I'm not sure why, whether that was a combination of or more so weighed on the way that it was taught. At any rate, I struggled with it. So fast forward a few years because I had a few years where I worked in between going to school and by the time I got to Berkeley in 1995, I began forming a library of physics books. So what I'd struggled with a few years prior now became effectively my number one interest academically, theoretically, outside of school itself. Yeah. So I'm answering your question in that the impetus for the book, uh, I have to owe it to how I began to conceptualize problem solving. And having this really unique aggregate composite of what I derived from being a jazz music student, a jazz performance student, coupled with someone who's got an affinity for studying physics who once really struggled with the subject. So this carried forward into any more specific self-education that I was able to amass really by chance with respect to what what I happened to to discover for myself and begin to read, for example, the work of Voroshansky and Isserin and Bondarchuk and Solyanov and Charlie Francis and so on. This was this was really by chance as I never had any any sort of a mentor or a yeah, guiding yeah. influence. You, I just you were happened a clean, to a clean slate, which is probably Better. It was a better. You, you know, confirmational bias leading into any of this. I agree. I, I, I especially agree with you. And so you 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 look at the uh, uh, the, the amalgamate of all of this, <laughs> couple with how I was raised, because as as I speak about in the book, culture is the most important thing. Huge. And how I was raised by my parents. The type of principles that were instilled within me mm -hmm. that resonated in me strongly. You know, my dad was a research scientist. He was is a PhD in physiology and biochemistry, and so I remember as a child, I would be listening to him prepare his scientific lectures because 
throughout the, the late 70s, early 80s, he was traveling around the world speaking at symposiums and out here I'm preparing his lecture slides through a closed door. And it would fascinate me because I could not understand any of the vernacular. <laughs> and I'm, undoubtedly that planted a seed. And so, you, you know, you fast forward to all the possible sort of cultural influences and all of those went into everything that I've done. And then most recently, the governing dynamics of coaching, which is truly a composite that is heavily steeped in the physics influence, which continues to this day. I mean, I spend one to two hours a day studying pure physics as a as a student, okay. even though I'm even though I'm self teaching, I'm I'm not paying somebody, but I'm it's a it's a big part of my life. And so there's a very big influence, not only specifically, but conceptually in terms of the physics in the book, in addition to all the other set of influences from the aesthetics and everything in between. The need, Robbie, was something that I can say I saw before I was even making money as a coach. Because as soon as I began to develop the idea that I would have some involvement in sport, it, it immediately became apparent to me how dysfunction the community of sport, how dysfunctional the community was. Yeah. And I can look back, I've said a couple times, I can look back on my computer because I've saved all these, I have, I, I have tens of thousands of documents over the last you know, 15, well more than that, almost 20 years. And I can look back and see the things I was writing at the very beginning in terms of my career in sport. And there's many parallels of the things that I might say in this next hour talking with you. So the conceptually, many of the broad strokes were there before I even began coaching. And then, of course, since that point in time, the more knowledge that I have amassed and a more specific context that clearly fortified what I was able to convey in the book. So I suppose that's how I might characterize where the need came from and the origins where I owe the origins to. Do, um, there was something you just touched on there in terms of, I actually had a good question in my head, but I have another one anyway. Do, do you think it is possible to ever reach a level where you can be, it probably isn't possible, but like you can have almost no sort of bias. Like, like it's, 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 it seems so hard to be able to remove rationality from some type of emotional input in, in terms of how you filter and perceive reality. And then therefore based off that paradigm or based off that foundation, I should say, that's obviously going to lead to how you coach them. I think that's a fantastic question, Robbie. And one that I could only speculate as to the answer. And in my in my view, the way the way I would choose to answer that, Robbie, is what's what's most important. Because if we if we separate ourselves from the purely speculative discourse of is it possible? What what I would choose to, the way that I would choose to think about this is is it necessary? What well, what is the most prudent way to attempt to? Because it's, it is my judgment, this is my view, okay. that it is highly important to remain objective 
and I carry this forward professionally as well as in almost every area of my personal life. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would concede that this is in no way my assertion that everyone must adopt this worldview. For me, however, I believe in it very strongly because by putting in the cognitive work, and it is cognitive work because yeah. it is it is not, not as emotional beings. If we exclude psychopaths and sociopaths, it is not inherent. It is not an inherent ability for most humans to think objectivity first, yeah. objective objectively first. There's there's much more of an inclination to be emotional first. And it is from emotion which emerges all of the antithesis of logic, reason, and knowledge, which is a rationality. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's been many, many, many years of putting in the cognitive work to, to practice being objective at nearly all points in my life. And speaking for myself, that's what fulfills me the most. And so that's why I do it. It just so happens to be that in many professional contexts, the ability, the skill to be able to call upon this mode of psychobehavioral, essentially processing of the environment is undoubtedly an effective one because many of the performance, if we accept the word performance to exist far beyond any sport constraint. Yes, of course. And just the performance of any individual in any profession. I don't think it's controversial at all to state that the greatest limiting factor is rooted in some form of amalgamate of cultural, psychological knowledge dysfunction due to the interrelationship shared between all and the the end game performance ultimately is heavily dictated by psychological state. So that's beautifully put that last part, because I mean, like anyone who's ever listened to a lot of my podcasts or spoke to me knows that like, I'm always talking about epigenetics and how the environment uh, shapes and dictates an organism. And, And it's also in terms of humans, it's not only that the environment can dictate our genetic expression when we start talking about epigenetics, but us humans have the power to perceive our environment too. So it's our perception of the environment. We, we have, as Viktor Frankl says, a freedom to choose between a stimulus and response. But I'm always talking about, you know, everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. And more often than not, human beings are the way they are for reasons that are completely oblivious to them. So you've touched on this things like their, their upbringing with their family or their parents or whoever their guardians were, their uh, culture, their society, like all those uh, indoctrinations that they were conditioned with from the day they were born that has such a vast impact on who that individual is in any given moment in time. And Lately, I've actually been looking at things and kind of breaking it down into any human being is the way they are in any given moment in time for either chronic reasons or acute reasons. Chronic being, again, upbringing, cultural belief systems, their society they come from, whereas acute is more like sleep, circadian rhythms, nutrition, like blood sugar regulation. And that has such a profound effect on, like, how any individual is thinking at any given moment in, in their time. And something I, I'd really love to just touch touch with you upon, it just came into my mind, it's something I was speaking with Jordan, who was an intern at uh, Altus, beautiful person, great guy. He was he was one of the, the physiotherapy interns I was on the strength and conditioning. And we used to do a lot of hiking and discussing, you'd love him 
terms of conversation, James. But this idea of you've read Sapolsky's work, I'm sure Robert Sapolsky, um, or maybe looked into Robert Sapolsky. You and he's uh, why zebras don't get ulcers. Have you ever read that? You probably heard my it. my partner actually owns that book. I have not read it. You, I think, that's I think my you, familiarity with it. Yeah, I think you'd really like. He, Sapolsky has his whole uh, his whole Stanford um, course on YouTube for free, so I think you'd really enjoy that. Um, maybe so maybe I'll get emails me at six weeks. This guy's amazing. Uh, or maybe or maybe not. But uh, Sapolsky in his book Why Zebras Don't Gale Ulcer, he, he talks about like one of the most stressful things to humans is uncertainty. So this question of uncertainty, and another author who I read is Joseph Shilton Pierce, who talks about like the ultimate question every human being had is what's after life. It's un- like we're uncertain, and like if you read any of like the classical Zen Buddhist scriptures or anything like that, or any of our profound leaders throughout human history, they've always said that at the end of the day, it's just coming to acceptance that we don't know what's next, and then it's just to meditate on that and realize that it's okay that we don't know. And the reason I bring this up is that what people do in compensation for this uncertainty is they come up with dogmas and belief systems and e- egos. They come up with these masks. Precisely. So when we talk about sports preparation, it's like, no, this is the way. Uh, this, this is, and it's emotion overriding objectivity again. Because, That's because they they're the the uh, the egotistical mass that they have that they clung on to with so much emotion is a safety blanket. It's like, I know this to be true because it's just the way things are. It's what I've been told since day one, whether it's a religious belief or a sociological belief or a you know, belief in society or a coaching belief in terms of physical preparation. The coaches, you know, say, no, this is the way, this is the way. And then if you say anything to maybe be objective and counter that, they get emotional. And then it becomes like, you know, the things you see on forums, name column, all this. So just going back, I'm doing a, three, right. doing a 360 now. And our point is that this idea of trying to make your default not to be emotional, but to be able to step back and be rational and kind of ask, well, what, why is this? And not only to be able to ask why or something else, but even to ask, why do I think this currently? Uh, Paul Check recently said to me on our last podcast, I, uh, you know, he's been asked lately, what, what's his definition of health? And I thought he had a very interesting answer. His answer is, I think a healthy human has an awareness of their awareness. So what he meant by that was like, I'm aware that even my own thinking is it irrational. Am I able to step away and be aware and say, maybe I'm not fully being objective here. And he says, if you can even get to that level of thinking, you probably are fairly uh, centered and aware person or enlightened being. But just again, the reason I bring all this up is this idea of being, of trying to be objective rather than emotional. And a question I'm going to post to you is, Obviously, we don't want to get rid of completely all of our emotional traits because emotional intelligence obviously has a huge part in coaching to be able to relate to another human. So how, how do you see the balance between that, between rationality and, and emotional intelligence? For, for me and in the process, the, the, the problem-solving process okay. is, in, in my judgment, irrefutably economized by working from an objective platform, yeah. which, which is to say a first principles approach yeah. to problem solving. Emotion, now let us, let us acknowledge the deeply philosophical nature of even us attempting to answer this question of, of what is the role and purpose of emotion in, in whether it be sport problem solving or life. It's deeply philosophical, so there couldn't be one right answer until we present a very specific context Absolutely. In, in, in my, in my judgment, the, and it's, and this is echoed in the book, the, 
the emotional beings that we, we represent are ultimately left reserved for the moments in life, any moment in life, in which an important decision does not hang in the balance. It, it is both my personal opinion as well as representative, represented collectively in the literature that you do not want emotion to contribute any significant proportion to any important decision because by definition – the greater the escalation of motion, of emotion, in some sense, there's some proportional diminished presence of reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's controversial at all. Yeah. And it's on this topic. So David Deutsch, who's a physicist that I mentioned quite a bit. You love David Deutsch. I'm only getting I, into I, his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, 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 uh, he's not the only one, but he's, he's, he's one of the theoretical physicists whose work that I just find to be incredibly helpful. And he has spoken about the, the importance of culture. And understand now that we, when we say the word culture, what we're speaking about is the, the aggregate of all you know, arts, aesthetics, the, the and any intellectual, the aggregate of intellectual, human intellectual achievement. Yeah. So it is much more vast than I would suspect most people think who use the word. So if we take an example of sport and we, we hear how the word is used and how important it is to establish a culture, I'm fairly certain that most individuals, most coaches who use the word don't actually understand what it means. Okay. And in and of understanding the, the definition, as an MIT professor mentioned in a thermodynamics lecture that I referenced in an, in an early presentation I created, just understanding the definitions gets you halfway there. So simply understanding what culture actually means would have profound implications on the ramifications of creating one in any environment. And it's essential to understand this because all, as Deutsch has explained, all new knowledge emerges from a culture that is set correctly. And this is a big, this is a big distinguishing topic because as you'll see, there's, or as you saw, there are, I, I cover a broad set of subject matter realms that I refer to as the governing dynamics. Yeah. And Critics of this concept conflate the they conflate information knowledge with understanding knowledge. And again, I would, I would defer to David Deutsch for those who are interested in learning more about the differences here, the, the epistemological foundations, in this case coming from a theoretical physicist, however, the way that we see how these apply to all realms of discourse. And I will circle back to the emotional piece from this. And of course, so, of course, yeah. the the information knowledge is effectively data retention, the processing of brute information, which is what we have computers for, and they'll become even better at as time moves forward. So it's data retention. So those who are in possession of a lot of information are people who are successful at board games such as Trivial Pursuit or the the, the popular television show game Jeopardy. Because you simply have a lot of data retained, which is not to be viewed as synonymous with 
understanding knowledge. Yes. Now, underst- right? understanding knowledge is defined as something that you mentioned at the beginning of our talk here in regards to teaching. Understanding knowledge is defined by explanatory knowledge. The extent to which you can explain yourself is in lockstep with how well you understand the material in question. Now, as David Deutsch has defined, a good explanation is to be distinguished from a bad one on the basis of how well it, it, it explains what it purports to explain while being hard to vary, which is an important distinction yeah. because everyone's full of some type of an explanation, but the way that we would objectively qualitatively assess its value must be based upon that criteria. And so to the point of the emotion versus objectivity in sports, the something else that Deutsch, I just read most recently in the the fabric of reality, one of his books that I'm almost finished with is the, the commitment. So we mentioned the, the, if we agree that one is, cognitively committed to being objective and therefore reasonable and logical a grand proportion of the time, what we, what we understand is that that framework from which one is working towards is one that is going to produce a greater amount of reliability in important decision-making. Mitigating the possibility for regret because it is my feeling that any regret can only possibly come from the conditions surrounding any particular decision in which objectivity did not play a significant role. So back to the con- the, the, the Deutsch was talking about the, the culture of science, the scientific domain, mm-hmm. and the, the essentially the. the the subject matter of vertical hierarchies in the nature in which someone higher in a position of perceived authority tends to receive or respond to either comment, question, or criticism. Criticism being the most important aspect of the evolution of knowledge, and it's often misunderstood in society. You can touch on that if you like. Yes. So if we look at the, at the, at the hierarchical, hierarchical authority, and you mentioned it already. You use a sport example. So if we take someone who is a perceived authority, notice the emphasis I place in the word perceived, yeah. and we imagine a perceived knowledge. Now, often these perceptions are going to be are going to be inappropriately influenced by the value of experience as being some sort of qualitative marker of knowledge, which in fact it has absolutely zero to do with knowledge. I can tell that you want you're going to, you have something to say on that. No, no, because I've heard you mention this before. And when I heard you say it for the first time, I was like, you articulated something that I, I couldn't put well into words the first time I heard you say it, but I'm going to let you continue because you probably say it again or even in a better way. (laughs) So what, what, what Deutsch was referring to was consider Consider, and I'll, I'll just use the words because now I've explained that I'm, I'm, as a prefix of perceived, everyone can now understand that I don't put place value on experience. 
particularly in the context of, of knowledge. So it's not it's not an absolute statement of me dismissing experience, but in the context of knowledge, it means nothing. Yeah. So now we take up a novice and an authority figure. And now we ask ourselves, in how many domains of profession is a novice presenting criticism to an authority figure? In how many domains is that going to be received objectively versus emotionally? And you've seen it already in sports, how the perceived authorities often meet criticism, particularly when it comes from a perceived lesser qualified individual, which of course those perceptions are diluted according to this functional culture. But for the sake of conversation, what we see is much more emotion, which is to say this perceived less experienced individual and therefore due to the problem of the confusion between where knowledge comes from, the perceived less knowledgeable even though they might be more knowledgeable than the authority figure, even though they have less experience. When they present their common question criticism, it's, it's unfortunately so frequent, and, and I can certainly attest to this as having seen it in sport for the last 17 years. For emotion to prevail yeah. and for insult to be taken, uh, how, how dare you ask me that question? Do, do, what are you thinking? What, what, what are you? What do you, you? What kind of a question is that? So the, the, these type of responses that are, we look at them. What's happening? They're, they're rooted in emotion. They're rooted in a lack of knowledge. Now we see these in a variety of domains because anyone listening to this who comes from a business environment or a sport environment or a military environment, everyone has experienced this. But the people who have experienced it the least, not to say that it's absolute, but the ones who have experienced the least come from the scientific domain. And why is that? Because the culture of science, and that's broadly speaking, obviously certain domains of scientific study are more committed to constant evolution than others. Certainly dogma exists in science, however, on the whole, those committed to scientific doctrine, the for me, of course, my I could speak most towards physicists of different realms that that are the most comfortable with the idea that no matter how much they believe in something or how much time they've been spent working on a concept, they're perfectly comfortable with the fact that it might get turned upside down tomorrow, and and they welcome the concept of being wrong. Yes, because it, because at least that means we've learned something. Yes, so. So those who are committed, it's the commitment, just like I might say one who chooses to be committed in remaining objective as opposed to emotional. The commitment to, to that type of, uh, which in this case is objective thinking, is intrinsic to so many domains of scientific study, unlike in sports. So the example that Deutsch is giving is imagine in some type of symposium, symposium, symposium yeah, you got it. Symposium. Losing. Yeah, symposium. Yeah, you got it. You have a novice who stands up. You have the perceived expert who's speaking at the podium. And, and at the symposium, you have the novice who stands up and, let's say, presents a, a conjecture or criticism. Now, more often, this is not to say absolute, but more often than not, 
you will have that expert on stage meet the criticism with objectivity, with reasonable thought, acknowledging the question and providing their own counter, let's say, argument or all rooted in good explanation. This is, this is more often than not a characterization of what science, of what the best in science holds dear. Now we could, we could extrapolate that to say, well, the best of any professional community would do well to hold that doctrine dear to the way that they behave. However, observations would reveal otherwise. And of course we see this exemplified on the internet because now we've removed that aspect of interaction to, to a more artificial, well, to an artificial plane because it's an electronic one. And, and now we have even greater degrees of grandiose bad behavior for individuals who are not committed to objectivity. I experience this frequently because many of the things that I have to say are controversial. And unfortunately, there are not more people in the sports community. Of course, they exist, but they're not the majority who are willing to engage in objective discourse. So, so the experience versus knowledge. And, and again, this is something that Deutsch and others have expounded on more deeply than would be appropriate to go into here in the podcast. But, but put simply, no matter how resistant one might be to hearing this, because we can imagine, let's say, all the coaches out there who, who might be listening to this, who, who say have been coaching for 20, 30 years, along comes James Smith, quoting the work of some physicists, stating that your experience has nothing to do with knowledge. Now, it's, it's very easy for a knee-jerk emotional response to emerge, taking offense to, what are you talking about? This 25 years, these accolades I've received, received, you're saying this has nothing to do with knowledge. And, what I, and my response to that is that's, that's correct. Because as Deutsch and others have expounded upon, new knowledge, big distinction, Big distinction between new not meaning something that no one on planet Earth knows. Yeah. That's new knowledge. Due to specialization, due to the fragmentation and education, what we have is an immense volume of pre-existing knowledge that has yet to be known by people in various professions, okay. which is not the same as new knowledge. But new knowledge is someone that no one on Earth understands like when Einstein, when Einstein came up with relativity but nothing came before that it was like completely new well in any great discovery yeah. if we speak about physics electromagnetism yeah. discovered Einstein's general special relativity quantum mechanics yeah. now all of these owe their foundations to some realm of pre-existing knowledge sets yeah. but the now we, we also have to understand the degree to which information sharing is prevalent. So before the age of the Internet, way more difficult. So ironically, even less of an excuse, less of an excuse for individuals who have access to the Internet to not have the relevant knowledge because you have access to the effective whole of human knowledge through your smartphone. Something that Galileo and Newton and Einstein and Faraday and Maxwell and Schrodinger and Tes all the Tesla. 
none of them had access to this, which is why you had was you know, mathematicians are going to have to excuse me from I don't have the best memory. So 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 Newton was a Leibniz found developed a calculus independently of one another. Newton first fathered by the German, I think it was Leibniz, but forget me if I'm getting the name wrong. And uh, they had no contact with each other. So the knowledge was developed by the German independently of Newton's work. Whereas nowadays, it's simply the capacity to ask the proper question that allows one to discover the realm of knowledge that pre-exists. And it's beyond the capacity of any human to assimilate because there's just too much of it by virtue of what we have access to. So most people are limited due in their knowledge due to their inability to ask the proper questions to access what has already existed. But then if we distinguish what is known knowledge, because someone might hear me say, and it's in it, I'm not the creator of this, of this concept that experience is not synonymous with new knowledge. Someone might hear me say that and say, James, that's ridiculous. How are you going to say experience has nothing to do with new knowledge? Because you could go sit down with one of these physicists who you speak so highly of. And after having one conversation with them, you could walk away with new knowledge that you did not know before as a result of the experience of having the conversation with them. So you're contradicting yourself. And that's when I say, no, 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 you've misunderstood. What that physicist is sharing with me is not new knowledge. It's knowledge that I did not know that they already knew. And that must be distinguished from the creation of new knowledge that no one on earth yeah. knows. It's never been brought very, into very big. Yeah. yeah. Very big distinction. And so, so the irony here is that what my book is filled with is not new knowledge in the absolute sense. Yeah. It is showing how knowledge has existed in some cases for millennia. Millennia, thousands of years. It almost, I have to laugh when I say that. Thousands of years, certainly hundreds in previous decades of knowledge that has long since been instantiated in the cultures from which the knowledge was derived that I'm using in my book and showing, look, I'm not creating anything new in the absolute sense. I'm not speaking about anything in the book that in a specialized concept text say any physicist or physiologist or endocrinologist or neuroscientist or psychologist or physiotherapist or artist or musician or composer, you name it, everyone, there, there is some population of people out there that if I sit down with that group, their only response, their only possible response would be, oh, great. Yeah, we, we, we've been doing that in our practice for, for a long time now. I'm, I'm glad to see sports people taking it on board. Yeah. You know, that would be and, and an example of this is because because physicist David Deutsch was so influential for me. I sent him a copy of my book as soon as it came out. And and he was kind enough to. To 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 flip. I don't know that he read it cover to cover, but when he when he emailed me back, he had a very he had some very nice comments to say with respect to how he I'm going to paraphrase how he, he, he acknowledged that I had told him, because we, we've had some emails back and forth, he acknowledged that I told him, but nevertheless, after having read through it, he was really impressed to see the type of thought 
that could go into sport coaching that he never thought was involved with sport coaching. So, so it's the difference between new knowledge and knowledge that's already known, but in a relative sense, any individual didn't happen to already know it, even though somebody else did. Yeah. So as we relate that then to the experience, and this is something that Deutsch has spoken about, it, it, knowledge, <clears throat> new knowledge, cannot, <clears throat> cannot come from our sense impressions. Yes. Now, experience is synonymous with observation, which is to say, you know, Robbie, you went and you spent such and such weeks at Altus. You observed what the coaches were doing at Altus. And as a result, it is impossible that if we constrain the dialogue to what did Robbie experience, it is impossible that you could in any objective sense come away and report on new knowledge in the absolute sense. Impossible. Now, what you probably came away with was new knowledge in the relative sense. Because whether it was Dan or Stu or Dr. Ramajita or Andreas or one of these people, presumably they knew something that you did not already know, which must be distinguished from something that no one, yourself or at Altus, ever knew or anywhere else in the world. And as a result of your collaboration, as a result of a conversation, let's say you had with Dan, I'm hypothesizing here. Yeah, yeah. The way, the way new knowledge that I'm using Dan Paffin's example and Robbie Borkin's example, the way that new knowledge could have potentially been created that neither Dan, neither Robbie, or anyone else on planet Earth was already in possession of, would have only been possible through criticism and conjecture and error correction and testing. It's the only possible way. There's no other way, which is to say that Robbie noticed something being done in sprint preparation and, and said to the coach, I, I see what you're doing here. I, I think it could be improved upon. Have you ever thought about this aspect of, say, femoral rotation or, or humoral rotation, some mechanical concept? And you said, have you ever thought about changing this, let's say, during block clearance? And let's say for the sake of example, that conjecture has never been administered anywhere in the world. And so now the resident, you know, quote unquote expert being committed to objectivity, he does not meet your, your conjecture or your criticism with any type of emotion. He gives it its due course and, and then responds, you know, that's interesting. Uh, no, I, I had not thought of it that way. Let's see if it works. And so then you're at this great proving grounds because what, what better laboratory do you have for athletics preparation, for example, than Altus? So you've got all these talented sprinters around. So now what happens is the resident coach says, you know, that's a really good idea. Let's try it. And so now you go through the trials and the rigors of conducting good research. And if – so you're, it started with a conjecture, which is by definition an incomplete idea because what Robbie said was – I'm seeing this mechanical 
aspect of motion happen. I think it could be improved upon if you tried this. I don't know for certain, but I'd like you to try this, and this is why I would like you to try this. So you offer a good explanation. You're not just winging some comment willy-nilly that you pulled out of thin air. You're coupling, let's say, what you know about physics and biomechanics and say, you know what, I think this would be more effective. And the objectivity, again, uh, listeners, this is all hypothetical, the objectivity of the resident coach allows him to say, you know what, that's very interesting. We're going we're, we're going to integrate that into practice. So essentially, we're going to do our experimenting. We're going to do our tests. We're going to see if your predictions are met with consistency and reliability. At the end of this, say say this happened at the beginning of your internship. At the end of it, say that your try your conjecture it was put into practice. It was given its due course, and let's say that it ends up yielding an objective improvement, which is to say that the both the from the period of time of a block clearance, let's say to the first ten meters with fully electronic timing, it shows a consistent, a reliable, an objective improvement as a result of this mechanical adjustment. So what's just happened, given this theoretical example, new knowledge was created that according to my hypothetical scenario has not existed anywhere else ever on planet Earth. And it owes itself to the origins of a criticism. To be distinguished from any new knowledge that you derived in a relative sense, not an absolute sense, which is simply something that you did not already know, but using this Altus example, something that one of the coaches at Altus already knew. I, I, very, very big distinction. I think the, the whole irony of that whole point is that we emotionally have a hang-up on being criticized. Like... Well, well, in the in the great words of Tonto, the, the long range and the long ranger's companion, what you mean we Kimosabe? Yeah, yeah. Not all of us, Robbie. Not and all. I know that you, I know that you don't either. Yeah. And it takes a cognitive effort to remain. It's such as the culture that I've written on my global sport yeah. concepts, my the conclave. I, I'm I've been so. <laughs> public about my encouragement and my acceptance of criticism and as I alluded to earlier because it's so misunderstood what what you described in stating you know not all of us are are as objective given that example that I gave that's a result of the the misnomer that what if you ask somebody what does criticism mean they associate it with some emotional negative con, exactly. con- some an, an insult, an yeah. insult using you, using an incendiary language. Yeah. When when in reality, the 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 most objectively helpful form of a criticism, I hasten to use the word best. The most objectively useful is one that is thoughtful. It is steeped in rational thought. It is built around professional courtesy and respect, yep. and and it is non-negotiably, Robbie, non-negotiably, irrefutably, immutably, unchanging. The most important facet of evolutionary progress, because and this is more physicist David Deutsch, 
as he's elaborated upon, the, the societies of modern day that are intolerant of criticism are the functional, well, they're not even the functional equivalents. They are the, the, the manifestation of tyranny. That's what a tyrannical dictatorship is. Yeah. It is an intolerance for criticism. Yeah. Now, fortunately, our societies are not built on that. However, in the isolated sect of the cultures and business and sports and so on, we are still met with a lack of a lack of progress in that regard. And again, it's kind of going full circle here in that you know, we spoke about how our upbringing, you know, um, our exposure to to our environments, our society, you t- touched on culture, but basically we're, the vast majority, I won't say all of us, but the vast majority of people have been conditioned to see criticism as something negative. When really, again, and I touched on this earlier on, is that it comes back to an organism's perception of its environment. So you can get two people, like me and you, we perceive criticism as a positive thing. Criticism is, is, is an opportunity, not an obstacle. And I suppose what I actually do with my students is instead of using the word criticism, I would use the word feedback, like constructive feedback. If That seems to make the majority of people who already have this bias that, that, that criticism in itself is negative. Again, to us it isn't. To us it's an opportunity to grow and, and continue our journey forward. I mean, if you think really about what evolution is, Evolution is a criticism, as in like what happened. So if you even look at our brain structure, we had a reptilian brain, and then evolution goes, mm, that's not going to do the job stepping forward here. That's a criticism or feedback, if you want to see it. And then evolution went, okay, let's let's do let's put a limbic system on top of that reptilian brain, a mammalian brain with more emotional capabilities. Then that got us so far in evolution. Evolution turned around and said, mm, that's not going to cut it if we want to keep going forward here, guys. So then that's evolution correct. goes right. Let's do a neocortex. And then that got, right. us, that got us so far. And then it was like, mm, I have a bit of criticism or quote-unquote feedback again here, guys. How about we added some frontal lobes to this? And if you look at this evolution, essentially we're gone from this motor sensory reactive species reptile to emotionally driven mammal to a more cognitive objective human. And then the, the, the latest evolutions, according to Alan Shore, Alan Shore's work, Joseph Shilton Pierce, who passed away last year, author he's like my david deutsch really for me you know yes. uh the the next sort of step in evolution is this idea of transcendence to be able to tra- transcend the previous constraints of our brain structures the capabilities used to have and to be able to to transcend above this reptilian fight flight brain this emotional irrational brain and to be able to tie the best of those in them with our objective human brain and to be able to transcend above all you know, irrationality, but yet still have this concept of unconditional love and compassion and understanding and empathy, but also to be able to step away and always be rational in that, always asking why, always asking better questions, always seeking to further grow and develop. Um, and I mean, like, so not to go off on a big religious thing, but, you know, the the, the story, the analogy of Jesus is, is meant to epitomize that in that, so I'm not, I'm not a religious person at all, so don't think uh, I just am using Jesus as a, as an example. But the whole idea, of the story, the whole idea was that he was such a transcendent human being that he forgave the people who quote unquote were crucifying him. Hence, why he said, "Forgive those father, for they, they do, they they do, they know not what they do." 
Like he had transcended so far beyond our irrational emotional thoughts that he was able to he was able to stay objective in such a heightened like situation that he says, I know I still love these people even though what they're doing to me. I understand why they are the way they are. He he had transcended so far above. So going full circle here again, evolution in of itself is a crit is an ongoing criticism or quote feedback. So it is not a negative criticism is not negative. It is a purely positive thing that we need to keep going forward in terms of, as you said, adding new knowledge, knowledge that's never been brought into creation before. But I've only I've only a few more minutes left here and I, I really want you just to touch on this concept, James, of you said in your book, I haven't actually added any new knowledge. I've just taken knowledge that is already in creation and existence, and I'm trying to put it together and put it in such a way that people can see it and perceive it through their lens and go, holy shit, I actually never really saw the connections between this and then this and then this and then this. So maybe just touch into that. And, and another thing you can touch on, and you can go on in this for about you know, 15, 20 minutes. The other thing, I, 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 and this is the question I remember from earlier on, I really love this in your book. It's basically that you were like, listen, sports preparation is basically a baby. It is in its infancy. So for people to turn around and say, like, this is the fact, this is a fact, this fact, you're like, hold on a second. Sports preparation, the, the modern sports preparation is not even a century old. And people are quoting around like as if like this is fact. It's so objective and yet again it's being run by uh, you know emotion and some irrational sort of feelings and thought processes so two things there is the concept of you hadn't added you hadn't tangibly brought something that never existed for integration but you just brought things together so you would say i didn't invent anything i innovated you could say and the second thing is this concept of sports preparation being just basically a baby if even a baby it's, it's probably even just a fetus if you want to think of it that so just those, right. those two things and, and then we'll we'll wrap up and i'm gonna to have to get you back on because Man, just when we talk, it's just like, yes. <laughs> All right. I enjoyed it as well. So, okay. So as to the nature of knowledge that I presented and the, the state of these, the Stone Age of sport. So this is true. The, in, in, in pulling so heavily from, from, from physics and the aesthetics and track and field, the late Charlie Francis, et cetera, Yes, the grand majority of, of knowledge that I'm conveying in the book was pre-existing and the innovations lie in, for example, the way that I ex expound upon the principles of track and field preparatory terminology, short to long, long to short aggregate approaches of manipulating the grand majority of sprint training distances and how those progress and shape in terms of in a short to long, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to oversimplify for, for listeners here who might not be familiar with track and field. So an oversimplification for short to long is the, the, the grand proportion of preparatory sprints leading up to the competition calendar shorter in distance then the competition distance gradually becoming longer. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with respect to sprint preparation, we know that the height of intensity is attained uh, from a neuromuscular perspective is, is attained at the moment in which maximum velocity is reached. So if we take a hypothetical sprinter who reaches their maximum velocity, there is no grand door 
muscle contractile velocities or forward horizontal velocities, none, none greater than at that moment of maximum velocity. So let's say that happens at 60, 60 meters. So we know an incremental advancement of distance leading up to 60 becomes more and more intensive. 20 is more intensive than 10, 30 is more intensive than 20 leading up to 60. And the same thing works from the, the long end to the short end. So short to long is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 leading up to 60. And if long to short is 200, 180, 150, 120, 180, 70, that long to short is also less intensive to more intensive because even though a 200 meter sprint occurs at a proportionally high velocity relative to what that same sprinter is capable of over 100 meters proportionally it's it's about as low as somewhere along that 30 or 40 meter mark so we <clears throat> so we have this <clears throat> bell curve effectively and in, in, as far as the parallel lines that are drawn between, and this is something that Charlie Francis put out, there's a chart in my sprint training book that illustrates this, something on the order of, from an intensity standpoint, 10 meters and 600 meters is approximate, and 20 meters and 500 or 400 meters, and you, you start going up towards the top yeah. until until now, for a, for a sprinter who reaches maximum velocity at 60 meters, the the 40 to 50 meter mark, which is just below, is comparable to the, say, 80 or 100 meter mark, which is just above. So in either way, you're either working shorter to longer in distance or longer to shorter in distance towards the distance of, of the greatest intensity, which is ultimately close to the actual competitive one in the case of a 100 meter sprinter. And an aggregate of coach approach, of course, is a combination of the two. So naturally, what I proposed in terms of a sport preparatory engineering concept, which is one of the main, it's one of the two main theses in my book, as to the uh, a sports preparatory engineer is one that I'm sort of drawing the functional equivalent to a a classical music composer, which is to say, if we think of the just the masterworks of the, of the classical era, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, Chopin, Mahler, etc. If we think of an orchestral, a symphonic piece of, of different movements, what I'm, what I'm conjecturing is how absurd the, the concept is that we would have a different composer for each movement. Because these masterworks of classical composition are preserving motifs, which is to say musical phrases that are recognizable, but they differ in their architecture, and they're, they're carried from one movement to the next. And so you preserve a sense of continuity and flow that, that could only happen from this, this information uh, coming out of the same individual. So this is why these masterworks were all written by one person, even though there was many iterations of them in terms of movements. And what I'm arguing for in sport is the functional equivalent of this composer in a term that I've called sports preparatory engineering, which is to say the individual who, who must, according to my argument, necessarily 
engineer the blueprint. So this is the functional equivalent of the composition. So it's the blueprint that accounts for every conceivable mode of structural neuromuscular stress of consequence. So whether that comes from a specific technical mode of preparation, from some specialized mode of preparation, from an active physiotherapeutic intervention, what we do is we take away the slang because all of these terms, I don't care whether they're physics terms or mathematics terms or biomechanics terms or sports training terms, they're all human created. So whereas, whereas the nature of motion is much bigger than any human intervention, because long before humans, there was other animals and reptilian figures and large-scale dinosaurs, if we go back far enough, who all could have been, whose motion could have all been quantified in terms of the physics and the emerging biomechanics. Now, humans come along, and as you described with your, with your evolutionary process in terms of the development of the limbic system and the neocortex and frontal lobe, etc., humans come along and Obviously, language is, is, is one, not only, but one of the intrinsic tools of communication. So we develop language and words, and that's helpful. But there's nothing special about it. It just makes communication more efficient. And it just so happens to be that whenever we can communicate in the language of science and in mathematics, we, we preserve a universal form of communication. Yeah. Because now I don't have to explain what the slang means when I'm speaking to a Belgian physicist yeah. or a Chinese mathematician. Yeah. So this is why I've always been a proponent for using the appropriate language in terms of its clinical relevance. <clears throat> so now then, it doesn't matter whether someone calls themselves a performance therapist or a physiotherapist or a performance coach or a sprint coach or an Aussie rules coach or a forwards coach or a scrum coach. Forget about all that. It's all motion. And when, and when, <clears throat> pardon me. And when I look at, a, at motion in terms of its, for example, physics implications, then I can just as easily describe any conceivable aspect of physiotherapy as I can any aspect of technical sports preparation. Because all of it is constrained by the laws of physics. So, for example, no matter how extravagant and diversified, which, by the way, is only for the purposes of monetizing the process, think of all the realms of, of physiotherapeutic intervention in terms of what practitioners are doing with their hands. So all the different types of massage, active release techniques, in myofascial this, in chiropractic that, in Graston we use a tool, all of these different slang. It's all slang. So, so someone like me, who was never indoctrinated through any myopic mentoring process, the same way that I've looked at any aspect of technical sports preparation, it's just motion. And all motion is subject to the laws of physics. So I, I use physiotherapy as an example. So no matter how creative a physiotherapist wants to get with their slang, what they can never get away from is the effects of pressure. 
and the manifestations of force, yeah. friction, torque, shear. Yeah. Uh, that's all it is. And in the language, I'm using physics as in classical mechanics, and in the language of classical mechanics, we get away from all this different slang that constitutes physiotherapeutic specialty, which I get it. It's a way for you to monetize your particular realm of slang. But in actuality, all it is is a specific manifestation of force expressed upon the human body. And then, of course, we couple that with the physiological knowledge of what happens. What happens when I apply this particular amount of pressure over a given surface area on the human body. What's the physiological response of that? What happens if I apply a torque force across the muscle and fascia? What happens if I apply a shear force? What happens if I apply a, a compressive force more localized in its point of contact versus more dispersed? It's physics. And then we couple that with the physiological understanding of the ramifications of the force application to the body. So in, 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 in taking a 10,000-foot view now, we, we think, well, how does this apply to all things? Well, motion. It's all motion, and physics governs all motion. And so you see a lot of these recurring themes in the, in the book. And so, and so while there's no, in my judgment, absolute new information, what's innovative about it is me saying, let's take these concepts of how we understand the implications of motion on the body, let's look at them holistically, let's adopt the thinking of a classical composer into the dysfunctional equivalent of a sports preparatory engineer who delivers the architectural blueprint by, the way, by way of their engineering that all physios, all coaches of any type must work off of. This way we account for all structural neuromuscular load stress instead of having one composer for sports technical work and another composer for physical preparatory work, and another composer for active physiotherapeutic intervention. Yeah, yeah. It's one composer. Yeah. And our, our physiotherapists, our coaches of all types, they become members of the orchestra. Yeah. And the global load manager, which is another one of the theses in my book, which is the functional equivalent of any competent head coach, the future of that I'm describing as global load management which necessarily must be an individual like the composer who has a broad enough understanding of all the moving parts. Yeah. So what does this mean in sport? That a competent head coach must, according to my argument, be an applied practitioner of psychology, physics, neuromechanics, physiology, neuroscience, and down the list <clears throat> by together what's constituted by, as I define the governing dynamics. <clears throat> note, note that I say an applied practitioner. Yeah. Much different because the, the those who would conflate the information knowledge with the understanding knowledge would find my statement as being, they would meet it with great resistance because they, they one might say, Okay, well, on one aspect, on, on, in one context, certainly that makes sense, but how can you tell me that any one individual could develop a PhD-level understanding in psychology, neuromechanics, physics, biomechanics, physiology, endocrinology, neuroscience? That's just not reasonable. And to them, 
to them, I would, I would respond, that's correct. What I'm saying is that a coach is an applied practitioner whose skill sets must unquestionably derive from these professions into the height of their intellect and cognitive ability be manifest through their efforts. So, so yes, I would say this is a difficult undertaking and in no way whatsoever should the concept of being a sports coach be attainable for anyone who wants to be one. No way in hell. In the same way, I don't care how much a group of young children want to be the next 100-meter champion. The the likelihood of any of them becoming the next 100-meter champion is strictly limited to what the genetic cards have in store for them. Similarly, the next Nobel Prize laureate in, in physics or a Fields Medal in Mathematics, that's not something that's available to just anyone who wants to do it either. You have to have the intrinsic qualities coupled with the epigenetic influences and so on. There's just no way to get around that yet. I suppose we're not too far away from the artificial intelligence and the the integration of technology into our brains, and that's going to be a big game changer. But until that happens... There's a genetic hand that we're all dealt, and it's largely confining with respect to what we'll ever achieve in life, regardless of the broad scope of cultural influences we're exposed to. And that's just the way that it is, folks. You have to accept that. So I say, no, uh, becoming a sports coach should occupy the same territory as a a theoretical physicist, as a advanced uh, geometer in mathematics as a neurosurgeon the the rest of the professions that we we the the public already accepts as well this isn't just a matter of i want to do that so i'll do that this is a rigorous process and you have to have a certain intellect and cognitive ability and will to persevere to hope to even be successful at this profession and of course it's easy to point out all the different sports where it's just maybe it's in maybe it's a it's less it's less of a quantum leap for people to connect those two dots to realize okay I, I get it not just anybody can be the next hundred meter champ just because they want to be or, or, or not everybody can be the next uh, long jump shit champ just because they want to be yeah. it, it takes more than just wanting to do it so <clears throat> so must coaching be in my opinion due to the magnitude of influence that a coach has on an individual, particularly from a health standpoint. The, the this implication of mismanagement of load and, and a misunderstanding of motion and on down the line and the amount of injuries, no doubt, that that leads to that gets brushed away as, oh, you know, shit happens, it's sport. It's, you know, you're moving fast, things are going to go sideways. This is what's happened with the dysfunctional culture of even the appreciators of sport in that what what has been accepted is something that just goes with the territory in truth is much more a product of of something that goes with the territory of incompetence. That's what the territory it it, it coincides with. So so have I professed anything 
that it was com completely new in the absolute sense? I don't think so. <clears throat> but what's innovative is the idea of assimilating something that works in another doma domain and now encapsulating the whole of sports preparation, leaving nothing out yeah. to be accounted for. So in my judgment, I mean, well, not in my judgment, that, that is how I would characterize that piece. And as to the newness of sports, to answer the other part of your question, this is this is easy. This is more easy for me to to. Oh, well, there's less controversy associated with this because all we have to do is look at the timelines. So uh, we 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 cannot we cannot acknowledge that the ancient Greek Olympics occurred in 776 BC because that was not the birth of of coaching as a profession, which is why from the time expanse effectively between 776 BC and the, and the late 1800s where football and, and I know that your viewing audience coming from your part of the world understands what I mean by football and that I'm not referring to American football, I'm referring to the actual sport in which most of the game involves players making contact with the ball with their foot, unlike American football, in which case only two or three players on an entire team ever touch the ball with their foot. So football, rugby, basketball, these sports began in the late 1800s. And even then, they were not professional in terms of workforces, unions, labors, full-time professions. So if we start the, the, the clock at the moment in time in which each sport became professional to the extent that you could make a living as a coach, as a player, we're, we are talking for the vast majority of sports less, in fact, for every sport, less than 100 years. So what this means now is, as I write about in the book, if we extend our perspective beyond the myopic one, and as I conclude with the book, if, if someone from the distant future was to read my book thousands of years into the future, what, what my argument is what we must do now is have the conscious awareness to assimilate what is knowable into the practice such that what is achieved is commensurate with actually what is knowable. So it's simply irrefutable that we, all of us, you, me, the, the heralded coaches of the past, the, the John Woodens, the Vince Lombardis, the Clive Owens, the Graham Henrys, the Scotty Bowmans, the, the Phil Jacksons. The, I, I can go through every professional and amateur sport and, 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 and cycle off names of, of what's, what, who are viewed as iconic sports people. As, and, and along with that, I can say, regardless of what they achieve, what they achieve must be acknowledged. It cannot be dismissed. It must be acknowledged. And along with that, they must necessarily be viewed as the functional equivalent of cavemen. We are cavemen yeah. because this is we are in the first hundred years of sport. Yeah. Now, do we have the benefit of assimilating knowledge from the periphery? 
of professions that are thousands of years older and by association thousands of years more advanced, exponentially more advanced, science and medicine, aesthetics and so on. Can we assimilate that and exponentially accelerate our position out of the Stone Age? Yes. And and you've seen that already in small pockets mm-hmm. of brilliance that have emerged in coaching, which which is to state coaches that can discuss with you the implications of what is known in physics, in endocrinology, in physiology, in neuroscience, in neural mechanics. That's an example of people who don't do not fall in the cavemen context because they're taking information that by analogy was not a, was not known or available to cavemen at the time of the Neanderthals. So the irony is that certain professionals who have attained iconic status are actually Neanderthals in sport. And in many cases, the the ones who are the most competent are in 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 many cases ones who are who do not have the public limelight. Why? Because of this dysfunctional culture of sport, like many others, that puts far too great a premium on experience versus knowledge. James, that's absolutely fantastic, my man. So, as I said, I've got more stuff I want to talk about, but I, I got to wrap it up there because I got a, I have a few things to do now with the prep meals and get some studying for college and I have to go down to a friend's house just for a few minutes to drop off something. So, but we got a good hour and 16 minutes there and it's, uh, it's beautifully articulated that the idea that we're in a stone age, but can we take something from other fields that are, you know, further along in their evolution? It was, and you, you, you spoke about that or wrote about that so eloquently in the introduction of your book, which I was lucky enough to read while I was at Altus, but, uh, I still have to officially get my own copy now. So, I'm looking forward to getting into that book now when I get it. Um, I appreciate it. So I'm really looking forward to it. Just for, for uh, 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 do you know what, because uh, uh, I have to go so quick, I won't really get a chance to, to hang offline with you. So um, what I'll do is I'll get in touch and, and we'll try and get you back on as soon as we can, maybe the weekend or next week or whenever suits. But uh, just for wrapping up this podcast, when this goes out as an individual show, just let the listeners know where they can, they can find you in terms of your material and, and your books. Globalsportconcepts.net. There you go, folks. Check it out. Make sure you check out his new book. Um, absolutely fantastic. The title, I think, is just a gem. The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, a Unified Theory of Sports Preparation. And I mean, if, if this podcast interview is anything to go by, well, then you're in for a treat with the book. As I said, I was lucky enough to read the introduction. Uh, I was looking up to, to kind of steal Stu's book out of his office. When I, you know, but Stu was great. Stu would let you take books, no problem. He was great in that regard. And I got to, a chance to read it one day in my lunch and just, I think for the whole lunch hour, I was just like nodding to myself, you know, in the corner of, of X office, everyone's looking at me reading this big massive white book. So yeah, it was great. James, listen, thanks so much. Uh, you can stay online just for a second. I'll, I'll say my goodbye to you. But uh, uh, for everyone listening, guys, what another absolute barn, uh, barn burner, as Sean Croxon used to say of an episode, an absolutely fantastic episode with uh, James Smith. Every time I talk to this guy, it just it always like just I feel like I'm, I'm really energetic after. And I'm always in a buzz because the, the conversation is always just uh, so good, you know, so enlightening, and, and uh, I just love it, love the depth of it. 
So, James, thanks for being again for coming on. Um, Thank you for having me on, Robbie. Always. Anytime, brother. Anytime. And again, as I said, we're going to get you back on soon, hopefully, if we get the schedules to match up. So, guys, listen, share this podcast out if you can. Um, really, really going to help. And as I said, now that I'm back in Dublin, back into my regular schedule after coming back from Altus, which I must do a podcast on with my experience there against Consolidate, what I learned. Uh, just keep sharing it around, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, guys. Take care, and uh, stay strong. Thank you.